Good evening. There's no mouth hole. Well, welcome to a spooky, upbeat live. I'm Alan Chapman. I'm delighted that you're here. Uh, I am going to be joined in just a little bit by our organist, Clark Wilson. I'll be able to talk to him for a little while. But I thought I would preface his appearance with a reminiscence by a silent movie pianist named Abraham Lass. The year was 1923. Uh, hit songs in America at the time. Yes, We Have No Bananas, Barney Google, that old man of my, gang of mine, that old, <laughs> that old gang of mine, Who's Sorry Now? Broadway, Little Miss Bluebeard, The Nervous Wreck, Cyrano de Bergerac, and George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan on Broadway. On the screen, silent films, The Covered Wagon with Ernest Torrance, The Green Goddess with George Arliss, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, with Lon Chaney, and Safety Last with Harold Lloyd, where he's hanging off the, uh, the building. And you know that building, the building is no longer there, but that is on Broadway. It's in downtown Los Angeles, and you can actually find, it's, it's like, I believe, between 9th and 10th on Broadway. Anyway, here's what this uh, pianist, Mr. Abraham Last, remembers from that year. 1923 was the year I started my career as a silent movie pianist at the Eagle Theater, a small, sour-smelling establishment at 16th Avenue and 42nd Street in the Borough Park section of Brooklyn. I was a senior at Manual Training High School, but on Saturday and Sunday afternoons and school holidays, I did three-hour stints at the keyboard. I was relieved by the full-time pro, a thin, erratic pianist in his 30s. He hated playing the piano, he hated the movies, and he hated the audiences. I loved all of them, and I loved accompanying such greats as Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, William S. Hart, John Gilbert. When I wasn't playing, the house filled with the ghostly whir of the projector. Running like a light motif through every performance was the incessant cracking of Indian nuts, the popcorn of the day, between the teeth of myriad Indian nut addicts during the picture and underfoot as the audience left the theater. There was nothing passive about the silent movie audiences, especially the children. To heighten the dramatic effect of tender love scenes or to provide live sound for Western or battle scenes, the older ones would fire off their cap guns. <laughs> the younger ones, identifying with the hero as he was being stalked, would hurl hysterical warnings. Look out, he's behind the door. There were always children reading aloud to their immigrant parents or grandparents the florid polysyllabic subtitles. And when necessary, which was pretty often, they supplied simultaneously translations into Italian, Yiddish, or German. At critical points, the film almost invariably split. This set off an orgy of applause, howling, whistling, banging, and floor kicking. The audiences seemed to enjoy these breaks more than the picture. Periodically, a man, usually the owner of the theater, would walk up and down the aisles with a flit gun, spraying a sickeningly sweet deodorant over the audience. The ventilation in the Eagle Theater and most other similar emporiums left much to be desired. At about five o'clock in the afternoon, parents began wandering through the theater, anxiously calling in the darkness for their children, who had seen two performances and now were on their third show. And his, uh, his chronicle, this uh, silent film pianist, concludes his chronicle with the coming of the jazz singer. Starring the great Al Jolson, appeared on October 6, 1927, and marked the real beginning of the talkies. By 1929, practically every movie theater, large and small, had been wired for sound. I joined the ranks of the technologically unemployed. I became a part of America's past. But of course, as you probably know, the silent movies were not really silent. Now, Thomas Edison, who came up with a lot of great innovations, he took a shot at synchronizing picture and sound, but in the early days, it wasn't possible to do that satisfactorily. So the films were silent, 
but they had some kind of music accompanying them, even the earliest short subjects. Now, music uh, was utilitarian. It was needed to drown out the sound of the projector, which was usually right in the middle of the audience. Well, later when projectors were put in soundproof enclosures, music was necessary to drown out the noise of the audience. In 1916, a Harvard psychologist wrote, without music, the one-sided engagement of the senses would produce an intolerable tension. So there's health benefits to having music, of course. As films developed in length and sophistication, it became apparent that music could actually work together with the movie to underscore and clarify emotions on the screen. One film historian writes this, there were moods and feelings and nuances and overtones in some of the better early films that simply did not come across to audiences without music. The facial expressions, the physical movements, and the printed titles were not enough. Irving Thalberg was the head of production at MGM. He said, we'd finish a picture, we'd show it in one of our projection rooms and come out shattered. It would be awful. We'd have high hopes for the picture, we'd work our heads off on it, and the result was always the same. And then we'd show it in a theater with someone down in the pit pounding away at a piano, and it would make all the difference in the world. Without that music, there wouldn't have been a movie industry at all. What did these early pianists and organists play? Well, in general, they played whatever they knew, Schumann, Mendelssohn, and the like, whether or not the music was appropriate to the mood on screen. Uh, there's a story that one of the theaters, the accompanist was so bad that when the heroine of the movie threw herself into the water, someone yelled, take the pianist with you. My favorite story, though, is an accompanist who saw soldiers in the distance and started playing three cheers for the red, white, and blue. The audience rose to its feet, at which point they all discovered it was the German army. <laughs> now, that kind of situation uh, could have been avoided if the pianist had previewed the films, but they didn't always get to do that. So they had to watch the screen and respond as quickly and appropriately as they could. Now, one musical strategy was for the filmmakers to actually distribute cue sheets with specific musical suggestions for the film. And here's a typical cue sheet. Opening, play minuet number two in G by Beethoven for 90 seconds until title on screen, Follow Me, Dear. Play Dramatic Andante by Veli for two minutes and 10 seconds, note. Play soft during the scene where the mother enters, play cue number two until the scene, Hero Leaving Room. Number three, play Love Theme by Lorenz for one minute and 20 seconds. Note, play soft and slow during conversations until the title on screen says there they go. Four, play Stampede by Simon for 55 seconds. Note, play fast and decrease or increase speed of gallop in accordance with action on the screen. Well, we'll find out more about cue sheets and we'll find out a lot more about what it's like to be on the accompanying end when I bring up the star of the evening, along with Lon Chaney, of course. Say hi to Clark Wilson. Hey. There's a microphone sitting for you right on the piano bench there. Well, it's a pleasure to see you once again. Well, it's good to see you, too. You've gotten pale since last I've year. I've gotten a little pale. Oh, okay. well. I'm hoping for a big bucket, but I got a little pale. Well, that I was, that was when about they keep as the good. lights oh, down. Please. So. It's mm. Halloween. Cut me some slack. Okay, Fantastic. have a seat. <laughs> so, so I'm so glad you're able to join us. Oh, and uh, uh, I've had the pleasure. This might be, I think, the, I counted, this might be the eighth time 
that we've had our annual get-together here for the, for the silent film. Oh boy, all right. Yeah, yeah. And, and we started when we were 12. We, so we did start when we were 12, yeah. And <laughs> we came here with, uh, with a bag asking for candy. Yeah, exactly. We said, exactly. come on and sit down. Exactly. Well, well I, let's just start with, with the experience of accompanying a silent film. And what, what struck me ab ab about what you do, which is, if you know, how many of you have ever seen Clark accompany a film before, by the way? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. You will not believe it. You, he, will, he will turn the organ into a symphony orchestra in the course of, after five minutes you'll forget that it's one person playing an organ, I, I guarantee that. But someone asked me uh, earlier, you know, isn't that tough to just sort of play continuously through an entire film? So this, in a sense, aside from the artistic thing, it's an endurance contest for you of sorts, isn't it? Well, it, it is in a film like this. This is the longest film we've done here. Usually the films are maybe 80 minutes or less. Tonight it's 110 minutes, uh, absolutely. And it was the rise and fall of the, of the French Empire. Right, so exactly. um, yes, to play something like that is somewhat of a marathon. And when you're done, even though your fingers, fingers are still connected to your hands, you do know you've done something. But I always think back to the people that did this for a living five times a day, seven days a week. So by the time I was done with the performance this evening, there would have been five minutes to take a breath, hop back on the organ bench, and start all over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah so really yeah. something. Amazing. And so there used to be a lot of people who did it. Now, you are now part of, I think it's fair to say, a rare breed. I would, yeah, I think so. I think and, and I think I've so. asked you in the past to estimate how many people do what you do at your level in the entire world, well, what would you say? Today, it's interesting because silent films have become so popular. You know, when we were growing up and so on, churches wouldn't have been caught dead showing a silent film, and probably not a concert hall as well, particularly some of the Buster Keaton comedies and, and some of the Harold Lloyd films that we do. Everybody shows films today. So there's a tremendous demand for organists because that was the um, instrument of choice in theaters around the country in the 1920s. There was a 90% chance that if you went to the film, you would hear it being accompanied on the pipe organ. Well, anyway, so the pipe organ is immensely popular to accompany these films. However, coming out of the age in the 1970s, the 1980s, and so on, when the emphasis, of course, in classical organ playing has been on Bach and, and uh, French music and the masters and so on, this business of scoring silent films, there aren't very many people out there that had the opportunity and that are old enough like I am to have actually mentored with somebody who did it the first time around for a living and the rules and the regulations about how to score a film and more particularly how not to score a film, what not to do, how to not burlesque a character, how to not uh, do things that are too quaint, how to not do so many things. These are rules and regulations that these folks don't know about. And so most people, including most organists today, put forward that you just walk in off the street, sit down, roll the film, and whatever happens, happens. You just play off the top of your head. Well, that's a mighty dangerous thing in a two-hour film to trust for the inspiration of the moment to keep you uh, producing music like Beethoven for an entire two hours or to not get stuck in a rut playing three blind mice over and over and over because you can't think of what comes next. And we've all been there and heard people that have, that that's happened to. So, 
the moral of the story is the people that were well known for scoring pictures in the 1920s and the people that really do a job on the pictures today put hours and hours and hours of preparation time in. In the 20s that wasn't possible because they were doing so many films, but still they went to their libraries in the basement, they dug out good music, the music of the masters, orchestral music, uh, overtures, ballet music, opera music, everything was fair game to score these. Yes, cue sheets did come from Hollywood and on occasion a full score, but if you were the organist of the theater and you had to play five times a day, seven days a week, and they changed the title of the picture three times a week, that was a lot of music to play. 180 pages of music show up on Sunday night at 11 o'clock, the manager gives it to you, and you're supposed to play that flawlessly for the noon performance tomorrow, making sure to get all of the cues in, not make any musical mistakes, and show off all of the resources of that pipe organ that we paid so much money for. It wasn't likely to happen. And so what they did was they put together cue sheets themselves off of music that they felt was appropriate, utilizing titles that were suggested by Hollywood, and this is how a few of us still do it to this very day, is that same type thing, and would come up then with an individual score that worked in that locale, that worked in their theater, that worked for them, music that they could play, that they really knew, and so on. So to go around Los Angeles in 1923 and see The Hunchback of Notre Dame in a half dozen different theaters played by a half dozen different organists, you would have heard it a half dozen different scores. A half dozen different scores. Now the orchestras that played, of course, they were bound to play the music that right. came out. And the only uh, thing about that, and there were magnificent scores that did happen, it was wonderful. Like at the Roxy Theater in New York, 110 musicians dedicated to playing for the pictures. But they were stuck to that printed page. They couldn't go forward, come back. They couldn't jump ahead. They couldn't uh, uh, tailor right exactly to the time. They couldn't be watching that screen, all 110 of them. And when the mask comes off, go bang and shock the audience at exactly the right point. That was why the organ was so good at that sort of thing. Am I off track or what? But that's what goes in, really to putting together one of these scores. So how many people, there are about a half a dozen that do this, that do this? I have a couple of directions I want to take. First of all, you, though, you mentioned that one of the, the do-nots is do-not burlesque. When you get into sound film scoring, uh, the, the term Mickey Mousing comes up because it, in cartoons, everything. And if you've ever seen King Kong, Max Steiner was a, a great composer of film scores, but when he did King Kong, he climbs down fire still playing this, bah, 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 bah. And that's, that's cartoon style, which we try to avoid. Uh, of, the, of the expertise you got from, and was this Gaylord Carter that you studied with? The one that I mentored with was a Midwest organist uh, in the Chicago area. His name was John Murray. Okay, so they he, would have been of the same generation. They were the same generation. Great. Yes. So you said that you, there were some you know, rules, some, some must do and some must not do. Is there, other than not doing a burlesque uh, job on a character, is there, is there some other do not do this that might be surprising or that surprised you that you thought this might be okay, but it's not? I'm not sure it was a surprise, but I remember one of the first things that he said is that you don't ever outplay the film. You're not the star of the evening. The film is the star of the evening. Yeah. You're there to be subservient to the film, to work that film, to make it jump off the stage, to ask, yeah. add that extra 50% to it, that it right. can wrap its arms around the audience and make them become part of the experience. 
Yes, you need to use the resources of the organ. When the volcano erupts, you need to shake the building. But you don't sit up there and thunder away all night. You don't do anything that calls attention to me. Look how clever I am. Look how cute I am. You're always working with the movie. The movie is the star of the evening. Now, don't play too loud. Don't play too soft. Don't play too fast. Don't play too soft. A thousand and one regulations yeah. of what sort of national music to use right. and what not to use, what might offend an audience in a particular performance, things like that. Uh, there were so many things that you typically just wouldn't think about. For a young fellow, it's kind of daunting. You'd think, wow, you know, what am I getting into here? I thought you just sat down and played. Mm, yeah. No. I suppose there might be some music that could be unintentionally, unintentionally funny. I think one of the films that I've seen and heard the original score for is King of Kings. Uh -huh. And right in the middle, this is of course is the, the, the passion, rather than the life of Christ, the final week of, of Christ. And uh, there's a particular scene where they, they want to crown him. Let's, let us, let's crown him as our king. The Christians are saying, let's crown him our king. And the score bursts into a chorus singing the Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, and it just, it's shocking, and it makes you snicker. Yeah. It makes you snicker. I was sitting with a group, and they all burst out laughing. It was just too camp. Yep. Maybe that worked well in the day, but there are a number of other things in that same score that you think about, ah, I don't want the audience to laugh. Heaven knows when he's on the cross, I don't want the audience snickering. Yeah. Um, so you have to change some things. You know, well, well, tastes haven't changed in 90 years, you know, yeah, yeah. And another thing that strikes me, having seen you accompany a, a number of films, uh, is that the preparation, the necessary preparation, definitely shows, because what you're doing, you're doing something that a film composer would do if they were writing music to be recorded on a soundtrack. And one thing that you do, and you do extremely well, it's not just the right music for the moment, but it's also that you are thinking about musical continuity through the entire film. And in that sense, you are, you really are scoring a film and, and uh, writing, uh, producing more music than even in the golden age of, of movies. You know, there was usually some, some respite for dialogue or other things in those films. So even, even in 1940s, you know, a Steiner, a Roja Waxman, they could at least have some breathing space, but you really have to keep it going. You go nonstop. There's only, I was taught, there's only one instance where you stop playing where you stop playing, unless it particularly calls for it in the film, and that is to denote death. That's the one place that silence is overwhelming. Uh, but yes, you're playing that in that entire time, that entire time. And um, it is scoring a film, and this is where the making the preparations and writing out a cue sheet and utilizing real music, music that exists, enables you then to come back, back reference further on into the picture. When there's a need to recall something that happened earlier in the picture, to bring back a theme from way back, that if you're just sitting there improvising, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. So that's where the thought comes in. It's the poignancy, maybe, of things like this. And of course, this evening's film is a poignant film. Yes, it's fun for Halloween. Yes, he's got an ugly puss, but of course, it's a classic, sad story. It, he's, he's a pathetic character, really a pathetic character. And uh, as uh, you know, the end shows, as, as, as he's 
Yes, I'm, I'm glad the lovers are together. I can't be a part of this, but I'm glad the lovers are together. You know, it brings a tear, and you need to keep the music doing that. You're not thundering away, and you're trying to back-reference way back that little love theme that you heard when he first saw her. Yeah. Now, another thing I know you have to do, it, you play different organs. An organist does not carry the organ around, just too heavy, hurt your back. You end up with a hunchback, as a matter of fact. Uh, but what, what I do know is that you have to maximize the capacity of any instrument and that a concert hall instrument like this is not a theater organ. Uh, and I was thinking it doesn't have all the bells and whistles, which prompted me to ask you, is that actually the origin of the phrase bells and whistles? Were they talking about the various contraptions on a theater organ? I thought it might be possible. I suspect that okay. probably had something okay. to do with it because it certainly was the original instrument that had all the bells and whistles. If you're not familiar with a theater organ, which was called a unit orchestra, it was a pipe organ designed to as closely simulate a symphony as possible with one player at the helm. And so there was a, a marimba and a xylophone and a glockenspiel. There were real drums, there were traps, castanets, uh, 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 just, just everything you could think of, tambourine, woodblock, tom-tom, triangles, all of these things, plus the silent movie effects, the wind machine, the thunder, the waves on the beach, the baby cry, the goat uh, 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 neighing, and so on, all of these things that the organ had in it. It was kind of the, the classical organ's Broadway cousin, you know, the high kicker, and so on. You don't have all of those facilities on an instrument like this. This is a concert organ, but Something like the Disney Hall organ is not your run-of-the-mill church organ that you, that you find in any small church in the country someplace in Ohio. This is uh, a, a, an instrument of magnitude that really in a two-hour performance, there's no way you can get touching any more than the tip of the iceberg of the sounds that it has to offer. But because this is somewhat as are all of these Halloween films that we do, somewhat classic films, a classic organ, a concert organ like this, is absolutely perfectly at home accompanying them. You don't need the bells and whistles. You don't need the Ugo Horn and Phantom of the Opera. You really don't. Yeah. And then back to the organ also, another part, not just your expertise in, in playing the organ and in playing the right music and coordinating with the picture, but part of your preparation also is registration, selecting the precise sounds you're going to use. I mean, even for a Disney Hall organ, which you've already made friends with on a number of occasions, you still have to come in and decide what particular sounds and what colors you're going to use, correct? You absolutely do. And when you look at the organ console and you see all those little round ivory colored buttons under the keyboards, they're pistons or presets, they're memories that we set up, all the organists set up their own sounds on. So you can get around the organ, creates combinations of stops quickly, and you don't have to reach out and manipulate 25 draw knobs by hand. And so we reset those and reset them and reset them a certain amount for every one of the pictures. Certain things that you want, certain sounds that you want, things that'll fit this picture better than uh, the, the, the pistons that you used for Dr. Caligari or Phantom of the Opera or whatever. Some different things. Some of the things remain somewhat constant, but uh, right. there's always special stuff that's tailored that right. you want to use in a certain right. spot right. on the right. film. And one thing that interests me, again, given what you do, uh, did you ever actually study orchestration as part of your preparation, or is it just that you have that natural instinct for it? I, I did. I have studied orchestration, not enough. Uh -huh. 
who could study orchestration enough? You know, maybe John Williams. But um, you learn something, and you know, you're you're constantly trying to learn more. Uh, when I've taught the uh, uh, the film silent film scoring classes at the University of Oklahoma, the first thing we do is we sit down and we watch Warner Brothers cartoons, not to watch the cartoons so much, but to listen to the score. Those scores were created by a theater organist that went to Warner Brothers. He was uh, from Kansas City. And if you've ever seen a Bugs Bunny cartoon, that name was Carl Stalling. And that style, that outrageous style, that crazy music that he put, it fits so well with a cartoon, with that type of film. You know, that's, a, that's an orchestrating type thing. And there are some wonderful uh, CDs, the Carl Stalling Project, where you can hear him rehearsing the Warner Brothers Orchestra and exactly what he wants and, and, and singing, no, 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 boom, titty, boom, titty, boom, to the drum section, et cetera, et cetera, uh, exactly what he wanted to make those pictures live. And you know, that's orchestration and, of course, the big, the big pictures. And one of the best-known scorers of big pictures in the 1920s was from New York. He worked at the Roxy Theater, and his name was Erno Rapay. And uh, he did a score after Hollywood had already released the classic film Sunrise. He didn't like the score. Neither did Roxy that owned the theater. And so they put a new score to it. And it was by far better than what came out from Hollywood. It was a spectacular study in orchestration, in color, in mood. And that man put together 500 pages, what they called the Bible, in the silent film accompanying business, uh, Motion Picture Moods, it was called by Erno Rapay. Of all the music that he suggested, you could accompany any film that came out with what was in this book. Well, I'm glad you brought him up in the book because that's what I'm going to talk about next. And I thank you so much for spending some time with us. Clark Wilson. Thank you so much. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. Well, Clark gave me the perfect lead-in because I happen to have a copy of Motion Picture Moods by Erno Rappé. This book came out in 1924, uh, and it is intended to provide the pianist or organist with music for whatever should happen to happen on the screen. Uh, and it is a tradition for me now during these Halloween proceedings to give you a demonstration, which I will. I will first point out something about this book. And that is, and you won't be able to see it in detail, but if you look in the left-hand and right-hand margins, you will see there's a list on the left-hand and right-hand margins. Every page, left and right, has that same list of various moods in alphabetical order that you might want to use. So, for example, the first one is aeroplane, spelled in the old way. The next one is band, then you have battle, birds, calls, etc., etc. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just take you through some of the moods, as it's called, motion picture moods. I'm going to take you through some of the moods and some of the music that is offered to the pianist or organist, and then I will give you a practical demonstration. So let me see what I want to do first here. I'm going to first turn to uh, the section marked Mysterioso because mysterious things often happen on the screen. So if I turn to page 169, I find Misterioso Infernale for Uncanny Situations, composed by Gaston Borch.
Misterioso, Infernale. Uh, 153, I guess this was a popular occurrence on the screen, but 153, uh, music for firefighting. This is Agitato number two. Very, very useful. Uh, if they happen to be hunting, you can turn to page 192 where you find the hunter's horn. Uh, let's see, Western movies. Ah, I've got to turn it all the way back to 667 for the Westerns. And on 667, what do I find there? Why, I find a Western Allegro for Western scenes, camping, mining, cowboy stampedes, barrooms, gambling houses, etc. That's by Hugo Riesenfeld. Uh, now, emotions. This is the big thing that, that persists in film music, the, the power of music in depicting the emotions, sometimes the inner emotions of characters that are not visibly expressed. So I'm gonna to turn to page 202 here, because on 202 I find a section that is labeled happiness. And uh, under the happiness section I find the happy wanderer. Very interesting, there are seven pages of happiness, there are 30 pages of sadness. <laughs> sort of tell you the balance in those films. Okay, sadness. That's right, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, that is sadness. Uh, Chopin, understandably, makes it into the sadness realm. How about love? I turn to page 215 and I find a nice piece for love by Brahms. But you know, sometimes love just gets really intense and it evolves into An orgy. And that is from Georges Bizet's La Lazienne Suite. Uh, purity. Purity. I love the fact that Mendelssohn gets a shot at purity. There is a section marked religioso, and religioso includes an old favorite by Handel.
And then there's a whole section of national music. And if I turn to page 441, 441, I will find national music. Let's see what I find on 441. On 441, I find, oh, Annie Laurie. And also a tune that I first discovered in this book. I don't know if anybody will recognize this particular national anthem. That is the Serbian national anthem. I, I don't know if that would ever come up. But what I'm going to do now, having taken you through some of this, uh, I devised my own little story. Imagine the screen is up there. And I imagine that I am uh, accompanying a film, and I have to use this book to select the correct music. So I will narrate my little imaginary film for you, and I will play the correct music. And it starts with a man who is wandering happily through the countryside. So our man is wandering through the countryside, and I hope, uh, I assume I would just keep playing that music as he wandered, until, just by chance, he wanders across an orgy. Well, so, he wanders across an orgy, but after the orgy, we see that he is absolutely horrified, embarrassed, and filled with sadness at his moral lapse. But then, what should come along, right up there on the screen, but, da -da 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 -da. <laughs> I don't know how they managed to do this really quickly on the fly. What should come along but a party of hunters? And among this hunting party, that he has suddenly encountered, there's a young woman with whom he falls in love. Yes, indeed, they fall in love and wait for the big finale. They fall in love and they go off together to start a brand new life in Serbia. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, in my concluding minutes, I would like to do a poetic recitation for you. Uh, as I guess, I guess a few of you might know that I uh, am on a, a little radio station called Classical KUSC, and 10 years ago they asked me if I might write something in honor of Halloween. So I'd like to recite for you the composer's Halloween Ball. 
"'Twas all Hallow's Eve, and all through the hall, composers were throwing a Halloween ball. In the corner, an orchestra doing its job with Mussorgsky's Bald Mountain and Sanson's Danse Macabre. Along the far wall, a monstrous buffet, Rossini, it seems, had been cooking all day. Granados brought specialties of his own casa, and Chopin showed up with a load of kielbasa. Tartini was serving his tuna tartare, and Padre Martini was tending the bar. And there in the light of a flickering candle was Johannes Brahms, all dressed up as Handel. Hummel did Mozart exceedingly well, and Debussy passed himself off as Ravel. Sibelius, not known as a jovial fellow, was decked out in feathers as the Swan of Twinella. And Wagner, that joker, was not to be missed. With his stringy white wig, he declared, Look, I'm Liszt! Verdi as Violetta was having a blast while Puccini as Musetta came fluttering past. At midnight, t'was Schoenberg who struck the twelve tones upon a marimba of skeleton bones. And what happened next could not have been finer. Bach played his toccata, the one in D minor. And though the toccata is not really a song, Schubert decided that he'd sing along, which wasn't so scary, the crowd would agree, until Ives chimed in, in a different key. Along about one, the police got a call and came to break up this riotous brawl, and despite the prodigious amounts they all drank, only Mussorgsky spent the night in the tank. Happy Halloween. Thank you. Thank you.